0: Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catelyn Tucker and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is best-selling author, AJ Giuliani, whose newest book, Adaptable, and just reached the bestseller list on both the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He serves as faculty for the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. He's a former director of learning and innovation for Sentinel School District. He's been a curriculum coordinator, a tech director, an English teacher. He's a football coach and a K-12 instructional coach. So he's had just about every job you can have in education, and I am thrilled to have him on the program today. So I love to have guests start by just giving us a little window into your journey in education. So where you started and how you ended up where you are today.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me on, uh, Catlin. I appreciate it. I um, love the podcast, love to be a part of it. I started off in education as a middle school language arts teacher and then moved up to being a high school English teacher. And at the same time, I was coaching football and coaching lacrosse and running all kinds of clubs. And I got very lucky because our school district started a one-to-one initiative with um, laptops in, in literally my second year there. <laughs>
0: what, so, do you know, what year was that?
1: Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, 2002.
0: Oh, so you guys were early
1: or 2003, yeah, 2003 maybe. Okay. Uh, so we we're early. We were one of the first in Pennsylvania. It was a, um, a very diverse school district that was uh, pretty high performing. At one point in time we had a student, the wealthiest uh, family or a student kind of in the in the county and one of the lowest uh, you know socioeconomic uh, student in the county. So it was a very diverse socioeconomic school district, great place to work, good people. And I was I was blessed by the fact that I had some really good mentors there that were keeping me you know just like hey this is these are some good instructional strategies pedagogy those different types of things. Well, at the same time, I got to bring some technology like know how to them as they were starting up. So I got to collaborate as a teacher really early. I was a team teacher my first couple of years as a middle school teacher, um, and then moved up to the high school. And as we started to Kind of just continue to grow using technology and project based learning, and things like that. A role popped up to be an instructional coach. And I jumped on that and I got to be a K through 12 instructional coach. In the first year I spent most of my time actually with the elementary teachers. Mm-hmm. I got to learn a lot about that. <laughs> um, and then, you know, that was when I got my master's in global international education from Drexel University, which was at the time a full online distance learning program, which there weren't many of those around mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Uh, and, then I, and then I transitioned into administration. I stopped coaching. I had kids uh, and I became a curriculum coordinator, a technology coordinator, a director of innovation and finally a director of learning and innovation uh, as well. (laughs) So I had a lot of different roles in three different school districts. Um, all different types of a rural school district, a more of a Title I urban school district, and then the first school district that I worked at was suburban. And the, probably the past um, six or seven years, I've been also teaching classes for the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education through Penn Literacy Network, developing online and blended courses, teaching them, being a part of that as well, and kind of having um, that side of the educational experiences as well.
0: Yeah, it's so different switching over to the the graduate level for sure. Like I'm I love yes. I love working with teacher candidates and there's still a lot of like the teacher in me that comes out in those moments, but it is really different. And your comment about coaching elementary, I had a very oh. similar experience going from <laughs> a secondary high school English position to part-time coaching. And I did so much work in elementary classrooms and it was like a whole different world, man. Just, Eye opener. Oh my opener. goodness. These people, I don't know how they do it, but like all They're day amazing. long, uh, so amazing. I mean, I would get like random from behind hugs from like a kid in a class and I'd been there for maybe 12 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> right, right. The, the amount of nose picking that happened and device touching was like making me wildly uncomfortable, but it was, it was I, hilarious.
1: I was blown away the first class I went into this first grade teacher was basically teaching kids how to read mm-hmm. and i I just couldn't believe it you know I I, I couldn't believe the attention to detail yeah. um, just the, the strategies she was using she was a fantastic and amazing teacher and I learned a lot I, mm-hmm. I learned so much those years as an instructional coach specifically k through five because I had never been a k through five teacher. Right. And um, just so many different things that it opened my, my eyes to the possibility of how to use, like some of the strategies they were using would be great at a middle school and high school level classroom, right? And Absolutely. some of the strategies we were using could also be used there, especially when we were kind of integrating technology. So it was probably for me, I think, a jump in just understanding what education looked like in that bigger picture that I, I got in those years as an instructional coach. It was, it was so much fun and so much learning.
0: Yeah. And you just see when they're so young, the energy and the creativity and the excitement and the curiosity. It was going into those classrooms was just a reminder of like, Right. They're not all like they seem at the high school level. At some point, they were all (laughs) really excited, curious beings um, who just wanted to move and explore. And I had many moments as a coach where I was like, how does this change so dramatically? Like, How do we keep some of this and retain it? And and I also saw things happen in elementary classrooms that then I would go work with high school teachers who were like, oh, no, high school kids can't do that. And I was like... "Mm I beg to differ. Yeah. I've seen first graders yes, do it. They can,
1: <laughs> they can, they can. So I'm with you.
0: You've had all of these different positions, basically all the jobs in education. It feels like you've had. <laughs> do you have a position that was like your favorite?
1: You know, um, I loved being a high school English teacher.
0: Mm.
1: I really did. I loved the the job of helping kids learn to use language effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably one of the most important skills that you can have as a person, especially leaving or being in in high school and kind of going into the real world. I love that people were trying to find themselves, their Mm -hmm. unique identity, and that they could connect with Literature, fiction, and nonfiction to see those mirrors of themselves, windows of different, you know, people and societies and those sliding glass doors mm-hmm. as, as, uh, Dr. Rudy and Sims Bishop calls it. And I also just loved coaching at the middle school and high school level. And so I have to say that role was my favorite, mostly because I could coach. Right. Um, and, and now I, I coach my kids in sports and everything, but that was, it was so much fun being able to connect with students on the field in sports, back in the classroom. We ran, we started this club when I was a high school teacher called the fans club, mm-hmm. which was a, an acronym for following activities in sports. Mm-hmm. And the whole goal of it was to build school spirit and school culture of kids going out and seeing other kids do what they love Aww. to do. So we would show up to a tennis match with 200 people, oh all gosh. dressed and, and clapping appropriately, <gasps> right? We would we would show up to the band concert or a water polo match and the kids would be rolling 100 to 200 deep. Wow. So it wasn't just football games or basketball games that got all these people, it was, it was all over the place. And I, I've never seen high school students just so excited to be part of something. Uh, So I loved my years as as a high school teacher. It was so much fun.
0: That is such a cool idea for a club. Talk about building community. And like you said, some of those sporting and music and events don't get the same kind of attention as, say, your, yeah. your big sports like football. And so how neat to like rally kids around each other. It was so much fun.
1: By the time I had left and I went into administration, I left that school district. We had about 525 students out wow. of a, a student body population, about 1,800 that were part of that club. That's and... Awesome. Um, they were on the news it grew to other places around our county our state the country and the the kids really did it all right we were just kind of you know they wanted to do it and my good friend and i steve Mogg, just kind of said sure we'll we'll be your sponsors <laughs> you know and and we were just along for the ride it was it was great to see
0: that's neat so on the flip side which position was maybe the most challenging or the most I don't want to say frustrating and have it be negative, but like, which one did you feel was the maybe the hardest position you had in education?
1: Yeah, I, I think probably I really liked being a, a director of learning innovation. I had started off as a, a tech director and then took over the curriculum instruction assessment uh, side of the district as well, and did that for about three years. Mm. It was very difficult seeing that. I had always thought as a teacher, oh, well, if I'm a a principal or a school leader or if I'm in charge of curriculum, I can make these changes, right? And Mm -hmm. it it was really difficult to see how constrained leaders are by the systems that are in place, whether that be school board trustees, whether that be um, state standards and assessments yeah. and those different types of things, or, or whether it just be you know practices of, of how folks have always done things and they don't want to change that. Mm-hmm. Having some semblance of influence and not being able really to use that, and then also learning very quickly that... You need to listen to people and see what other folks want to do in your community of learners, not just come up with your ideas. Mm -hmm. I think that was humbling. I learned a whole lot in that role, but it was also just, it was difficult. It was challenging, the whole political scene uh, in education. And then also, I think probably the one that we don't talk about enough as school leaders is that everything in school district, at least public school districts right now, has to be run by a solicitor. Mm-hmm. And so being at this high central office administrative role and seeing the litigious nature mm-hmm. of schools and just how everything is so litigious, that was something that was just mind opening of, of the challenges that present itself to school leaders all around the country and around the world, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Actually, what you're saying reminds me of a conversation with Dr. Scott McCloud in the last episode, and he was talking about the difference between kind of going into a leadership role as like a visionary with like what you want to get accomplished, what you really value, and then coming in and really building with stakeholders, which your comment about listening to people and finding out what does this community want to work toward that really resonates and reinforces that conversation we had last time.
1: Yeah, and for me, it was it was a big learning curve,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: but also one that it just takes a whole lot more time. You know, so if you're a go getter, you're a little impatient. I definitely am sometimes. Um, you know, I am also a little bit. exactly like that.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it's like it's like oh wow, all these obstacles and barriers present themselves yeah. for a reason, and you have to take your time and you have to be you know, just really methodical in your approach of of starting from that place of look, listening and learning and empathy and building from there.
0: Yeah. So you're really well known for your work on Genius Hour. What initially appealed to you about Genius Hour and what shape did it take in your own classroom as you were starting to kind of put it into practice?
1: So 2011, I was an angry, frustrated, desperate <laughs> teacher. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was... Mostly because I was overwhelmed. I was the type of person that I think many of us are as educators that just load our plates up with way too much. Mm -hmm. And um, my family was growing. Um, I just had a lot of responsibilities at school that continued to pick up the years that I was there, from coaching to clubs to all those different types of things. We were rewriting a curriculum. We were doing a project-based learning. All these good things, but it it just is a lot. And that school year, I had three classes where it was all inclusion classes. 28 kids, 16 with IEPs, mm, 27 wow. kids, 17 with IEPs. So it was a challenge on a lot of different ways. And then I had two honors level classes as well. Probably by November, I realized that anytime I handed something out to my students, they would raise their hand and say, hey, Mr. J, how many points is this worth? Uh, if I hand it a day late, how many points did I get off? They're just playing like this game of school, right? And they were really good at it. Whether the game was to not fail and get a D for some kids Mm -hmm. or the game was to get an A for some other kids, It, it was still the same game. What level of work do I need to do to get the grade that I need to get? And so I had a colleague that kind of called me out, basically said like, AJ, you're the most positive person I know. And all you've been doing is complaining the past month. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) why I wanted to fight him, he was speaking the truth and he was a really good friend of mine too. And so I just, you know, over Thanksgiving break, just like went down a YouTube rabbit hole and Google, you know, searching for stuff on motivation engagement came across Dan Pink's uh, TED Talk on the surprising yes. truth of motivation and his book. I didn't read the book at first. I just watched the TED Talk. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just doing research, I saw that, you know, Google's 20% time, how they give their employees 20% of the time. And I saw some other people talking about this in education and passion process. I, said, oh, why don't I just try this with my kids. You know, What's the worst going to hurt? You know, I'm not going to grade them on it. I'm just going to give them this 20% time. And uh, I, I announced it in the in the market period after I think it was the start of the third market period. We had a big nonfiction unit. And so mm-hmm. I just used this Genius Hour as a nonfiction part. And the kids did not like it at first, except for a couple of them. They didn't. They just wanted me to tell them what to do to get the grade, right?
0: I know. Every time you give them anything that might feel a little like loosey-goosey or it's student-directed, it's a little more like nimble or flexible, they're like, wait a second. How do I, like you said, how do I do this so I get the points I need to get the grade I need? And you're like, that's not the point.
1: Right. And it wasn't their fault, right? They've been playing this game of school for a really long time. It wasn't necessarily their fault. Um, But it took me a while. I had trust with them build up. So so they finally kind of got it. And once they actually started to dive into things that they're interested about, it was amazing. Mm. Kids were, were emailing me on the weekend, talking about stuff. Parents were sending in things. I mean, there was just this community of excitement. And as a, as a teacher, right, it could be the most challenging job in the world being mm-hmm. a teacher. But when your kids are engaged and excited about learning, it's the best job. I, oh, you know, totally. and anybody as a teacher will tell you, like, what when, when my kids are excited and engaged, it's an awesome job. Mm-hmm. And so they were. And for me, like I'm an oversharer. So I started writing about it. And <laughs> other people right? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm an oversharer online. Like I was I started writing about it, blogging about it, and I found a couple folks who were in Canada who were doing something very similar to what I was doing, and they were calling it Genius Hour. And on the blog, I invited four of them. It was Joy Kerr, Hugh McDonald, mm-hmm. um, Denise Krebs, and Galit Z. And I asked them, I said, hey, would you write, because they were middle school teachers and I was a high school teacher. I said, hey, can you write a middle school perspective? I think one of them taught fifth grade of what this looks like. And they wrote this blog post called the Genius Hour Manifesto. I had written probably 10 blog posts about 20% time. They wrote one about Genius Hour and it took off, right? And so it just started this movement around this idea that was not new. It was just inquiry with a new name. Right. And inquiry is not new. It's always worked. It's always been a great way for us to learn as people. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of got people fired up to do more inquiry things. And, you know, ever since then, I wrote a book about it. I've had lots of different articles, interviews, all kinds of things about it. But there's nothing fancy. Mm -hmm. It's just giving kids time to learn something they're interested in under whatever constraints you have in your grade level or subject area, that type of thing. So that's how it all started. And uh, as most good things, it started from a place of frustration and a problem to solve.
0: No, absolutely. I I was going to say, I hit that point of frustration around 2007. (laughs) And that's when my entire teaching career started to change for the better, for sure. And your point about student engagement having an impact on teachers, I literally just wrote about this. Like, Teacher engagement is something we need to be talking more about. And it is reciprocal with student engagement. So when student engagement soars, that totally leads to higher levels of teacher engagement. So these things that we can do to spark that engagement for kids is only going to have benefits for us as educators. Though I know a lot of teachers listening might be feeling like I love the idea of genius hour, but I don't have time. And I think the, at least from my perspective, the kind of misconception is that the idea is genius hour is somehow totally separate from the curriculum and standards. And I know that you have written in your own blog about how to take the standards into consideration. And like you just said, it was part of a nonfiction unit. And so really tapping yeah. into that. So when you have teachers kind of push back around time or the logistics um, or, hey, I've got to cover these standards to prepare for this test, how do You address those concerns? Where do you suggest teachers begin if they're interested in genius hour and kind of want to incorporate this into their own classrooms?
1: So my answer, I guess, 10 years ago is very different than my answer now. Mm -hmm. My answer probably 10 years ago was there's lots of different ways to incorporate choice in whatever you're teaching. And that would be the kind of the starting foothold I would use, right, to get in there. But in the past 10 years, I've seen teachers literally do genius hour in every subject area in every grade level, in every state in this country (laughs) Mm -hmm. and around the world. So I know it can be done in (laughs) New York, third grade, because there's been teachers doing that, right, with the regions testing there. And I know it can be done in Idaho, and I know it can be done in Arkansas because I've seen teachers do it. So Mm -hmm. um, I understand that we all have constraints. I would say find those places where you typically aren't doing something and start there. So like around the holidays, start Genius Hour there. Mm-hmm. Around testing times when you can't give homework and the mm-hmm. curriculum slows down, that's a perfect place to start and do Genius Hour, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other big piece is how can, you know, say you're a biology teacher, how can kids dig deeper into a subject that they learn, that they're already interested about, they want to learn more about? Boom, there's a Genius Hour, right? Mm-hmm. Say you're a, a third grade math teacher, how can kids apply the math that you're teaching to a real life situation? Boom, that could be a genius hour. They get Mm -hmm. to choose, right? The situation, they get to choose how they apply it and kind of learn into it. So it doesn't have to be complete Freedom of choice. It can align to what you're teaching. I think it is options that are built in that mm-hmm. give it that time. And the reason I liked when I started out the twenty percent time moniker a little bit better than genius hours because you could just think about it of, of like a percentage of time. You don't mm-hmm. have to feel like it's an hour. Sometimes people will do it three four days in a row, and then that's what it be it right. And other right. times people will do it once a week for a market period. Figure out where you can fit it in, and um, I can share with you plenty of examples of people from all over the country, all around the world, doing it and kind of fitting it in, and really connecting it to their curriculum. Absolutely. Part of, and I share this in the book, adaptable. But part of my big problem with curriculum that we have right now is that we start developing curriculum with standards and not reasons for learning.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: when we start mm-hmm. with standards and not reasons for learning. We can cover a hundred standards, but it doesn't matter because the kids aren't paying attention. Right. And I would rather us start with a reason for learning and connect the standards to that second, because then at least you know that the kids are gonna have relevancy, meaning, and authenticity built into their learning.
0: Right. It reminds me of like starting with the why, right? Are we being really clear about the purpose, the value of all this so that we can make that clear to learners? Because I think that's a step that's missed far too frequently in education. Like we know what we're doing and why we're doing it, but we're not always making that super clear for learners. And so then they just feel like they're kind of jumping through these arbitrary hoops and not working towards something that really they care about and that's going to be meaningful to them.
1: Yeah. and, And they... They also are are smart, right? They understand from a very young age. Oh, is this a fun activity, <laughs> or is this an activity that I have to do just because it's school? Right. And when right, like my my kindergartner, my second grader. Yes, I have a lot of kids. My fourth grader, they all come up to me. And I say, "Hey, how was school today? What did you guys do?" That type of thing? oh, we did a fun thing in in science. Right. Right. I didn't say was it fun or not. They came up with that, right, uh, to say that it was it was fun because they understand the difference between the things that they have to do, and I'm putting my fingers in air quotes right now, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus the things that are exciting. And that's the things that they remember. That's the things that they have a reason for learning.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned Adaptable and congratulations. It just reached the Wall Street Journal and the USA Today bestseller list. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I want you to tell us about it kind of what inspired the book, like who's the audience, how is it structured, whatever you want to tell us about it. I am curious to hear.
1: You know, um, when the pandemic first happened, I think a lot of us, and I know you and I work pretty closely. Maybe a couple months after it happened, but once mm-hmm. it started happening, I think a lot of people were like, well, "What are we supposed to do now?" Right, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, I had taught online courses. I went through that distance learning program. I had created some blended courses for UPenn. Like I had done a um, completely blended program for as a as a director of tech. The last district that I was in had a lot of these experiences, but it was way different, right? Mm. Because this experience was an emergency. It was a crisis. And everybody was in flux, and so I was just spending a lot of time trying to find resources that would help my own kids' teachers, trying to find resources, uh, strategies that would help teachers around the country and around the world that were kind of going through this. And this is where that idea for a book came through, mostly because a lot of the strategies I had put in the second book that I ever wrote called Learning by Choice, it was a follow-up to my book on Genius Hour, these strategies were apical. They were working right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them had to be tailored to be online, but they were working. They were strategies that stood the test of the pandemic and, and COVID. And so that's where the idea for this book came. And it, and it basically, here's kind of the thesis of the book, Catlin. Educators have always been adaptable. We showed this, right? We were able to be adaptable in the middle of the pandemic, but the systems that we have weren't adaptable. So our mm-hmm. curriculum wasn't adaptable. Our resources and materials weren't adaptable. Our assessments weren't adaptable. The people were. Yeah. We had to adapt everything. We, we were the ones, the educators, were the ones that made this work for the past two years. Yeah. But the systems weren't. And so I was like, how can we write a book that really focuses on making those systems adaptable so that the people, there's not as much of a strain on the people in the system uh, because the system allows for that flexibility, adaptability. And so that's really the kind of the center kind of argument and thesis of the book.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I saw a lot of that, you know, teachers just putting in so many hours and really trying to figure out how to transition online with really no, no warning, no training in terms of blended learning or online learning. Um, and as I think about the last two years, I think the piece that I want school leaders and teachers to carry forward, regardless of what happens with the pandemic or how long it stretches on, is just that we need to have those approaches to this work, whether it's mindset, skill set, tool set that are really flexible. Like we can't take for granted that we're going to be in a particular learning landscape for (laughs) any stretch of time, right? Anything could really happen.
1: Right, and... There's only so much control and influence that that many of us educators have on those systems. and so the the book was was really written from a perspective of the pandemic gave us a reason to fix these issues. Mm-hmm. And if we don't take that reason, then we're really doing everybody a disservice, right? if If we don't move away from traditional, Tests and standardized assessments, when we know that the research has been saying for decades that they don't help students have retention, they don't promote achievement, and they obviously are not adaptable, as we saw. Mm-hmm. If we don't take this moment to say, "Let's fix that," let's move to some more adaptable performance tasks and those types of things, then I think we're really missing an opportunity that has come out of this challenge of the past two years.
0: Yeah, I would a hundred percent agree. So. If readers walked away from Adaptable kind of understanding one thing, like what do you hope they walk away thinking, knowing, feeling after reading that book?
1: I, I think the the big thing that I would want them to walk away with is this understanding that when we make learning simple and we focus on those very human attributes of it being a social experience, a human experience, Mm -hmm. a language-based, a meaningful experience, then it doesn't matter if it's online, blended, or in person, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And when we can create a curriculum that takes that into consideration, that the resources have to be authentic and meaningful so that the performance tasks can, so that the, right, Mm -hmm. um, curriculum can, If we can start from that place, then it'll make everything much better. I think a lot of what we saw pre-pandemic is that things were created to save time and be more efficient. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in some circumstances. But what it did was it made us all very hungry for data and not really know what to do once we got that data. (laughs) so (laughs) you know i like i remember being a director of learning and be like here's all the data we have on our our third graders and our eighth graders and this and everything and i'm just like well how do they enjoy reading books (laughs) like that's the question we should be asking Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. do they like solving mathematical problems Mm -hmm. those like these simple questions i think are much more important than what we've made education to be, which is this kind of conglomerate of data and achievement and all those different types of things, which we saw just crumble mm. under the premise of a change in how we do education. So for me, it's, it's this idea of like, let's go back to the basics of what matters in learning. And what matters is that kids have a, a meaningful learning experience, that it's relevant to their lives and who they wanna be and who they are now and that it's authentic uh, in nature. And if we can do those things, then they're gonna learn and Mm -hmm. teachers are gonna be engaged and communities are gonna feel like they have a voice in what you're doing and it doesn't have to be that hard. I think we complicate it in a lot of ways. And and by we, I'm not saying us as educators. I'm talking about society, culture, specifically politicians (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, that have complicated in a lot of ways
0: yeah and you have a lot of people making decisions quite frankly that impact all these other stakeholders who their idea of school and like what it should look like and the purpose it's informed by experiences that happened so long ago you know and there's there's sometimes i feel like there's that that perspective of let's just keep it simple. Let's figure out what do we want kids to be able to understand or be able to do, or how do we want them to contribute to society and the world? And how do we cultivate those types of humans? Like, I wish we were having more of that kind of conversation and education, especially right now when it's clear that we're at this, this kind of point of, we can go back to air quotes, business as usual, which I hear a lot about and makes me sad or we can, like you're saying, use this as a catalyst for reimagining some of these systems and these approaches that quite frankly are not working.
1: They're not working. And and a lot of them, like Scott Uh, Your your previous guest here, um, he did a post, I think it was in 2016, maybe Mm -hmm. 2017, where he looked at that Gallup poll of engagement. Uh I remember reading it on his blog, and he had two graphs that basically the graph showed that every year kids were in school, their engagement level drops. Right? (laughs) This was, I think in 11th grade, it had dropped down to 32% of students. Out of a million students surveyed said they were engaged in, in school. Wow. Well, no wonder kids weren't showing up to Zoom meetings. Right. Because they already weren't engaged, but they had to come and sit in a chair to be a part of the school setting, Mm -hmm. right? It was compliance. Mm -hmm. As soon as they just had to pop on a video screen, they either weren't going to or they weren't going to show their face, they're going to mute and that type of thing because they already were there pre-pandemic, it just was coming out in a way that we all could see it visually because they weren't sitting (laughs) in front of us, Mm -hmm. not engaged. They were showing their disengagement in very specific ways.
0: No, absolutely. So to be clear, everybody listening, AJ has five children. And so I, I just want to lay that out there before I ask this next question, because I'm not sure of the age distribution, but like, are you starting to see in your own kids that trend of becoming less engaged and less excited about school as they age up? Or are they still too young for you to be seeing that?
1: So uh, my daughter, my oldest is 12. She's in seventh grade. Okay. So she's uh, middle school. And then I have a fourth grader, a second grader, a kindergartner, (laughs) and a (laughs) one-year-old.
0: Amazing. I don't know how you guys are doing this. (laughs)
1: Uh, So it's pretty crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But the interesting thing that I've seen is my kids go to a small school. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, if you've ever seen uh, JTP or the Goldbergs, the show. Oh, yeah. That's where we live. We live in Chanketown. Oh, my goodness. So we're... (laughs) That show is set. That community is where we live. It is a mile square community. They get to walk to school and right next to us on either side are huge school districts. And we're about 15 minutes away from Philadelphia. So it's a very unique place, right? Mm. I always say that because I do believe that my kids' schooling experience is a little bit different than a lot of uh, students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like they're very known in their school from their teachers. Their teachers do a great job of building relationships. Um and even though some things are are fairly traditional, I think that those relationships have helped them enjoy school. Yeah. Do they enjoy all their activities that they do? No. Um, do they enjoy you know all of the tests that they have to take? Probably not. Um, but I think most of them enjoy school. Mm. And I- I'll tell you why I'm saying that, Catlin, is because even under... The constraints that I think many of us have as educators, Mm -hmm. when kids can find meaning in coming into our class because of us Mm -hmm. as teachers, we can kind of overcome a lot of those things.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: So I I have seen my daughter, who's in seventh grade, really care about the game of school a little bit more the past couple of years, Mm -hmm. right? You know, she's, she, she's sees some of her friends, older siblings going to college and just different things like that, right? She's always been a good student. She's always cared about school. My son, who's in fourth grade, he's more of like, like I'll, I'll do anything, right? He'll, he'll do anything, but he's not aware yet that necessarily the grades and the scores are comparing him to his peers. I think yeah. once he gets to that place, then it might be a little bit overwhelming, right? And I think for a lot of kids, that's where it gets overwhelming. When they start seeing that the marks that they're getting, the grades that they're getting, mm-hmm. aren't always necessarily for them to get better and feedback for them. It's mm-hmm. to compare and contrast them against other students. That, to me, is always the real hard part about school when, when kids have that epiphany and they're like, oh, wow, I'm being compared to my friends here based yeah. on the grades that I get. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of kids.
0: Yeah. I know it's been fascinating watching my own children because my daughter is now a freshman in high school and my son is in seventh grade, like your daughter. And I have these memories of when particularly my son, just because his transformation has been the most dramatic, but when he was young and he like, they had these like watch me work nights at his little preschool where the parents would come in and literally watch them like do work in the classroom and the kids would like talk us through it. And and at the end of a day, a long day after I'd been teaching, I was kind of like the last thing I want to go is to watch me work night. But then his excitement about these activities and the things he was doing, it was just like so sweet to watch. And as school became a place where... It shifted from kids in small groups cutting and coloring and tactile and social to this focus on a teacher and then go home and you don't really have time to... Disengage from school, you have all this homework. And listening to my son talk about teachers who talk the whole time in class and like endless paperwork and all of this homework, I think for him, that's really what, if he had to go to school and he could be social and work with peers and then he could go home and not worry about like having a bunch of homework, that kid would probably still love school. But I can tell you, he does not.
1: (laughs) You know, I I think that one of the biggest problems is homework.
0: Mm -hmm. So,
1: I mean, the research is pretty clear that there's not really a benefit to homework, mm-hmm. um, specifically K through eight, but it, it's, it's to me, it's like it makes more work for the teacher, yep. more work for the parents and more work for the kids, and there's no proven benefit. But why would anybody do that? Mm-hmm. And you know the only answer I can get is that I think some people think how much homework you give or how rigorous the school is is based on the homework, right? You know, like mm-hmm. um, my daughter has friends that go to private school. They give more homework than the public school. Yeah, you know, wow. I, I wonder why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, you know, a lot of times it's because that seen as like the way to bump up rigor and how challenging the school is. So I, I think even for my younger kids, when they have homework, we now do homework in the morning as fast as we can. Because I, right, I'm, I'm serious, right? Like they get, and they, they, all of my elementary age kids, we do it in the morning and they fly through that thing. Mm-hmm. And I, we've told the teachers that and everything, we've had those conversations, but it's, it's really hard for them to come home after school, after doing that type of thing all day long and then, and then switching to homework. And it was hard on our relationship as parents and helping yeah. them, that type of thing. So we've switched to the morning routine for them. And uh, even though it's a rush, you know, to get stuff done, it's a much better. They're like, this is the start of the day. We're back into the learning mode. That type of thing. And then when school's done, that can just be a kid.
0: Oh, that's nice. And it's that they just need time to be a kid thing that I think we all need to honor a little bit more too, because. Oh my gosh, the amount of stress so many of these kids are under because of the workload, and and I hear from teachers sometimes who are like, you know, Catlin, there's no way I can get through everything I'm expected to get through if I don't give homework, and I'm like, that's a problem. <laughs> That, that is, is problematic. A problem. Yeah. So from your perspective, so we're talking about homework, we're talking about testing culture. Do you feel like there are any other big culprits when it comes to all of these imbalances that, you know, teachers and people in education experience because there is so much that I feel like teachers struggle with and it's so hard for them to establish that kind of work-life balance because of the demands on them. So what do you see as some of those big culprits that create all of this imbalance that teachers are really wrestling with?
1: I think somebody has to hold um, higher ed colleges and universities and admissions departments accountable. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been saying this for a long time. I've actually seen there's been a pretty big movement of people changing some of their admissions processes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially over the past two years uh, with the pandemic. But as long as parents believe that kids have to have a certain GPA to get into colleges, Mm -hmm. And as long as parents and communities believe that they have to do well on SATs, ACTs, then everything is kind of backward designed from that end goal. Mm -hmm. And that's where the culture of testing comes from. That's where the homework comes from. That's where the pressures on the teachers come from because... They feel that community pressure, right, Um, to get kids prepared for those types of things. And it's it's a lot of times how schools are stacked up against each other, that type of thing. For me, I always think about it like, if you're an art student and you're applying to an art school, they care about seeing your art, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a musician and you're applying to a music school, they care about hearing you play music or hearing you sing right yep why don't we care about that in every other <laughs> angle right you know it's like yep. it it's it's it doesn't make sense to me that if we can do it for those arts and and there's other you know areas that we can do it for then we can do it for everybody um Absolutely. and again it comes down to that time and efficiency thing is it going to take more time yes is it going to be less efficient sure but it's it's going to have a, a much greater impact on students. So you know you have these students that are taking all these AP or IB classes, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not because they want to take those because they're interested in the subject material most of the time. Sure, mm-hmm. some of the time. But it's because they want to get to a good university. Yep. And they think that's what the university wants. And in many cases, they're right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I feel like a major culprit is just the end goal of our systems that are put into place right now, and I've seen there's been some some shift and some change. Now, is getting rid of the SAT or ACT like going to fix the problem? No, I think it's a, it's a huge systemic problem. But one of the big things I think we need to think about is why is K-12 always being asked to change and mm-hmm. always being asked to modify and innovate and figure out ways to do things better or more efficiently? Why can't we ask our higher ed to do that? And Mm -hmm. take some of the burden off of our families and our teachers and that type of thing. And this is a generational shift, right? That's not going to happen in a couple years. But to me, it's a huge ongoing culprit into why schools are created the way that they are.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. I love your comparison to like backward design, like we're backward designing for that unfortunate kind of expectation that kids are facing or the, just the challenge of getting into college right now. But I also, I'm sure you hear this too. When I come and work with K-12 educators around blended learning, I sometimes get pushback, especially from high school teachers who very much, um, some of them are still kind of seeing their value in a classroom as being really tied up in that subject area expertise. And they'll say, Why should I not lecture, Catlin? Why should I not follow this particular trajectory in terms of designing this type of lesson? Because this is what they're going to get in college. They're not going to get cooperative group work in college. They're not going to get self-paced whatever in college, genius hour in college. So I think that also the way in which so many college classrooms are run is also another one of those kind of factors where, you know, secondary teachers kind of point to that and say, well, I'm actually preparing them for what they're Mm -hmm. going to get after this. So why should I change practice?
1: Right. Right. (laughs) And I, as a director of learning innovation, I used to have some college professors come and do PD for my high school teachers, Mm -hmm. specifically because they were going to listen to them because it was meaningful to them. It was relevant to them. Right. And just, you know, somebody who, who wasn't teaching at the next level. And, um, they would have very open, honest conversations about like what it looked like uh, and how it was changing and that type of thing. I actually think the pedagogy and structural strategies have changed a good bit in a lot of universities. Yeah, uh, there's still going to be those you know 400 person classes where there's not mm. much you can do other than lecture,
0: right?
1: Just because of economics of, of scale, but. In a lot of those like second, third, fourth year type classes, I've seen people kind of changing things. We need to have people share that out. Mm -hmm. We are all under these assumptions that things are the same as they were 10 years ago. They're not. But until we share and put it out there and have these conversations and make it known, then I, I think people are going to continue to have those assumptions.
0: No, oh, that's great that you were able to make that connection cuz I do know there are like shifts and upper division is different than lower division like you're saying in terms of like the volume of students and what's feasible yeah. in terms of instruction but um I do you know how often do middle school and high school teachers or middle school and elementary articulate and then there's not any of that articulation or conversation necessarily happening between yes. high school and junior college or college in the area which I think that could be a really fascinating on both ends to be sharing strategies and ideas and approaches that are working and maybe a little outside of the traditional box.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it's going to be beneficial for all parties involved, right? To to be able to ask questions and talk through things. And again, it's it just comes back to that. It's meaningful, it's relevant. It's it's the same thing that works with our kids, works with our teachers.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I always end the podcast by asking my guests to share something they found helpful. Uh, it could be professional, personal, that's allowed them to maybe create or strive for more balance in their lives. Um, given as busy as you are writing books, leading trainings, delivering keynotes, being a dad to five kids, and like being a coach to multiple sports, how are you doing this?
1: <laughs> so, um... I had a, had a mentor of mine years ago basically give me some advice that really stuck with me. He said that throughout life, there's going to be seasons of life and you're going to be working harder in some, working less than others, that type of thing. But he mm-hmm. said, the main way to get through those seasons is to come up with quests yourself. Instead of thinking of all the things that you have to do, um, You know, come up with journeys that you can take. Mm-hmm. And I've Taking this, like, I think a lot of people talk about habits and we talk about goals. And to me, like, having the same habit every day for the rest of my life sounds awful, right? (laughs) Like, that's just, that's just to me, it just sounds awful. Like, I I don't, for some people, it doesn't sound awful. For me, though, it's like, if I have like a quest, would be getting my, my master's degree in global international education. Mm -hmm. That was a quest. And so, was my balance going to look different during that quest? of course right mm-hmm. because i was trying to achieve that and do that having <laughs> having kids uh, in school like trying to get them all through elementary school trying to get the, those are those are ideas trying to get through the pandemic like having this idea that you're on a journey that will end and then you get to pick some different journeys along the way has been really helpful for me because my balance has always been seasonal. It's Mm -hmm. always been uh, whatever life has given me, I've I've tried to make the best of the time that I have. And when I think about it in terms of trying to achieve or accomplish something or go through a journey that's going to have an end goal, I I just have a much better place of, of what that looks like. I have more anxiety if I'm worried about what I should be doing to make my life balanced. Than Mm -hmm. if I'm just going after what I need to do uh, during that that season of life, so that to me has been something I've always thought about, and uh, it's been like it's like made certain parts of life that I think have been stressful at least exciting Mm -hmm. and meaningful uh, to trying to get through those and do that with my family, you know, my wife, my colleagues, uh, my kids, uh, everybody as well. That's that's kind of been something that I've taken to heart since I heard that.
0: I love that because you're so right. Like there's just these these seasons, these moments or time periods where it's gonna be really a lot more intense than at other times. And if you can frame it in such a positive way that also acknowledges that this isn't forever, this is this moment or for the near future, but I eventually am gonna get to be on a different journey and I might have a a different level of work or responsibility. It just kind of keeps things in perspective.
1: Yeah. And, and also, a lot of people are, are quitting their jobs now because they have options, mm-hmm. right? You know, A lot mm-hmm. of people aren't going to college right after uh, high school because they have options. Mm-hmm. So I think in life, we have so many options right now of what we can do. And sometimes that's overwhelming. And so to take one of those options and say, I want to go after this and achieve this, but it's not going to be for my rest of my life, I think that's okay, right? That's fine. That's that's fun. That's a quest mm-hmm. where we feel like we have to choose a career and we're going to be in that career for thirty years. <laughs> that's overwhelming. <laughs> that, that to me is is a burden, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because the then the choice becomes a burden, not the actual work that goes into it. So, um, just reframing a lot of the things you know that I've done. Um, and continue to do around that idea of a quest. And, you know, I'm an English teacher, so I'm a hero's journey yep. dork and nerd. So, you know, <laughs> it's just, it works for me. <laughs> but but maybe those folks that aren't, aren't book nerds, it might not work for them. Well,
0: you are speaking to a fellow book nerd English teacher, so I totally can appreciate it. And I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. It was so fun to get to talk with you. And congratulations again on your book. That is very exciting.
1: Thanks so much again for having me, Catelyn. And Uh, just uh, excited for all the work that you are doing in education. Um, It's really impactful. So thanks again for, for doing this podcast and having me on it.
0: Absolutely. Some definite highlights in this conversation, but I think one of the things I wanna repeat and stress is that in the last two years as crazy as being in education really has been teachers have been adaptable, teachers have been creative, teachers have really figured out ways to navigate this constantly changing kind of teaching and learning landscape and I think it's not teachers who have struggled necessarily to adapt for the most part, it's been the systems it's been our approach to teaching, it's been some of the external kind of pressures that are on educators that struggle to adapt. And so I think that's an important thing to note because I think a lot of teachers haven't gotten credit for how incredibly adaptable they've been in a really tough situation. The part of this conversation where AJ and I are talking about engagement is so concerning to me on a lot of levels. The idea that kids come to school and every single year there's this potential for them to be less engaged in the learning and less engaged in the experience. As I've shared multiple times, I've been a witness to that as a parent and it's heartbreaking because when you do go into elementary classrooms, you see the excitement and you see kids who are really curious and eager to learn and want to retain that. And whether it's playing around with ideas like Genius Hour to really turn the learning over to kids or finding ways to allow them to pursue aspects of the curriculum or the things that we're covering and talking about through a lens of interest so it feels relevant and exciting. Like, I think we need to really put some emphasis on that because the more engaged students are, the more engaged teachers will be. The two are reciprocal. And right now, I really worry about the kind of devastating impact of the pandemic and all the pressure that's been put on educators and what that's doing to their engagement. So I want them to have permission and to be encouraged to really focus on designing and facilitating learning that students are going to find engaging and relevant and exciting because that's only going to have positive benefits for the teacher in that scenario and their engagement as well. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and with different language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's focus to include engaging, supplemental digital inquiry solutions for both social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.